Hello and welcome to episode 73 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Jeff Katz. Jeff is the mayor of Cooperstown, New York, and is also the author of the book Split Season 1981, Fernando Mania, The Bronx Zoo, and The Strike That Saved Baseball. Jeff, thanks for taking the time to join the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be on, Ross. Well, I ask everyone this right at the top. Tell me what initially got you into baseball as a fan in the first place. Hmm. You know, it, it's hard to remember. I grew up in Brooklyn in the, the 60s, early 70s. Uh, my father, uncles were all Brooklyn Dodger fans or New York Giants fans. So that always seemed to be in the air. Um, but I actually think like baseball cards and baseball books probably made me a baseball fan rather than the game making me into a collector and reader. So my earliest memories really circle around cards and books. I know you're a big baseball card guy. I see you on Twitter posting about cards and, and of, of the Sabre baseball card committee. I know you post there as well. What was your first set that you remember getting, your first packs that you remember opening, and do you still collect today? Yeah, my first packs, uh, it sounds crazy, but this feels like a real memory. I was probably around two or three, and I think my first packs of cards were Beatles cards. Um, so I always loved cards, but I can remember opening packs going back that far. Um, it's only once we get into like 1970, so I was about eight then, that I recall like not only buying packs, but I would like save pennies to buy a box because a box of packs cost like three and a half dollars back then. So, um, I remember doing that, but the first set I completed was 1972, partially through buying packs. And then by 72, I had realized there were actual card dealers out there. So I got like all the high numbers and stuff. So I still collect every year. I get the base set, but um, certainly since the advent of the Sabre Baseball Card Committee, my passion for collecting has taken a, a huge hike up. So uh, I'm I'm kind of dabbling in it every day these days. Of course, my question is, I, I, I loved baseball cards as a kid, and then I went away from it as I got older. And now that I have a son, I'm sort of getting back into it a little bit because I want to show him not only the cards I grew up with, but I want him to have his own as well. How do you keep cards and binders without the cards falling out? It's the million-dollar question. <laughs> I'm not a huge binder guy. I'm more of a, the long boxes. Um, I've never been one to want my cards graded or untouched. I mean, part of the joy of it for me and hopefully part of the joy of it for your son is just having them in your hand. I mean, I care about the condition, but not so much that they're not to be touched. So, <laughs> um, so I don't really love binders. I've used them a few times, but I tend to just like pulling out boxes and going through them. I want to switch over to your responsibilities as mayor of Cooperstown, New York. We're one week removed from all of the induction ceremonies there in Cooperstown. Tell me what it's like that weekend for you as the mayor and what some of your responsibilities are as the mayor of Cooperstown. So the village of Cooperstown has been hosting inductions of various sizes since 1939. Um, so there is something of a process. Uh, that takes place on a regular basis. We know how this goes, and even though crowds have grown, um, there's still a mechanism in place. So planning for the weekend starts months and months ahead, uh, and it is really a big partnership between Cooperstown, the Hall of Fame, 
Cooperstown Police, State Police, Sheriff's Department, Homeland Security, State Troopers. There's a lot of people involved to make sure the weekend is safe and goes on without a hitch. So that's part of the village's responsibility is to make sure that what happens in the village works well. From a, a direct weekend point of view, I don't really have any responsibilities per se. I'm always roaming Main Street, um, almost like on call. I mean, I know if something happens, I have to leave, you know, the baseball autograph line and <laughs> and go take care of mayoral business. But the weekend um, is almost as much a fan weekend for me as a mayor weekend. I do get invited to some special parties as mayor, which is a lot of fun. Um, so I have as good time as anybody who visits. Tell me about some of the interactions you've had with some of the Hall of Famers over the years, and what have, who are your, some of your favorite people that you've met? Well, you know, it's I, I've, I am no more jaded now. <laughs> uh, I think that's the wrong way to say it. I'm not jaded by being mayor and living in Cooperstown for a long time. So I've been really fortunate to meet a lot of people. I'll tell you one great story that involves me, but also involves my youngest son, Joey, who's 21. Um, when we lived in Illinois, we lived outside of Chicago for 16 years before we moved to Cooperstown. Joey was obsessed with Frank Thomas. And when Joey was about five years old, he wore Frank Thomas shirts, talked about Frank Thomas, totally involved. When my wife went to parent day at his preschool, she said, oh, I'm Joey's mom. And the teacher said, there's no Joey in this class. And my wife pointed out to him and the teacher said, oh, Frank. He had told everyone his name is Frank. He had written Frank in his notebook. He insisted his name was Frank for Frank Thomas. So when Thomas got inducted, was that two years ago, three years ago, uh, the Tribune, the Chicago Tribune did a daily Cooperstown Chicago Connection series. And the first article was a Sunday Tribune article about me because I had lived in Chicago and now I was mayor of Cooperstown. We got to tell Frank Thomas that story, and the Tribune article started with the story of Joey pretending to be Frank. So every year, my wife and I would see Frank Thomas at certain parties. He knows us. His wife knows us. Finally this year, um, because we were invited to the Tim Raines party on Saturday, um, I saw Frank. I'm like, are you going to be at the party? He said, yeah. Um, I said, Joey's going to be there. He's like, great. Can't wait to meet him. Then actually before the Reigns party, we were at a different party and Frank and Joey met and it was the most wonderful thing. Like Joey was thrilled and Frank is, he's just a genuinely sweet guy. He was as enthusiastic meeting Joey as Joey was meeting him. So, you know, that's just one story out of many, but it's kind of a highlight. And it also points out how, you know, it's very easy to, to dismiss Ball players and say they're not nice, they're jerks, they want money, they're greedy. I don't find that to be the case. Most of them, just like most people you run into in your daily life, are pretty good people. So the Thomas story just represents a lot to me. 
that's amazing. That's good stuff right there. I actually grew up in Boston as a Red Sox fan, but Frank Thomas was my favorite player. I always had favorite players on other teams. I think that was in large part because of loving baseball cards and loving numbers. And I met Frank a few years ago, and we just had a nice long conversation about the Cape Cod League, and he couldn't be more engaging and more interested. He was just totally like a nice guy talking about the Cape Cod League and his host family and everything else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, um, you know, and I don't know if, you know, we'll get into talking about split season, but one of the things about split season to me that was important to get across was this kind of knee jerk players are dumb, shallow, greedy, you know, somewhat not human, (laughs) uh, has never been the case. And it's not the case now. And the guys in the game that I've met, and believe me, I'm not in baseball. I don't meet a ton but I meet more than the average person. I have found almost all of them to be just pleasant, pleasant people. So um, I'm always happy to kind of share that because it's not what the conventional wisdom seems to be. Before we get into your book and the 1981 season itself, uh, news came out today that Don Baylor passed away. Tell me about some of your memories about Don Baylor. What did you remember about him as a player and what was your favorite Don Baylor card? So as uh, you know, I was born in '62. So Baylor's arrival in the majors was somewhat heralded. He was known as a big Oriole prospect. Um, I was out of college in '84, and I think he came to the Yankees in '85. Does that sound about right? So I was going up to Yankee Stadium a lot, seeing Baylor a lot, uh, and then that kind of remarkable run where he was in the World Series three times in a row with three different teams. Um, I always liked Baylor. Uh, you know, he always just seemed like a, a good guy. Um, his best card, you know, I, I loved him in that Angels uniform. Um, and I can't off the bat think of a great card. There is a 1981 top set that's really big. And not, I don't think they're like five by seven. That might be too big. But they're like big, glossy photos. And there's a great photo of uh, the, a great card of Baylor in that set. That's very cool. I remember Don Baylor at my first year really remembering baseball was 1986, and he was on the Red Sox that year. Even only He only played for Boston for you know a year and a half. I think of him as a Red Sox. He, he was on that 86 team. He's forever <laughs> linked to the Red Sox to me, even though much of his production happened, obviously, with other teams. So I think of you know his 86 tops yeah. and his 87 tops cards where he was with a Red Sox uniform in those cards. That's really funny how you identify with a certain period in your life, you know? Yeah, it's weird. Those guys that sort of, uh, whatever that marker is, for me it's 86. It's weird the guys that sort of change teams right around then, 86, 87. It's like I think of Ricky Henderson as both an A and a Yankee and say, you know, Dawson is a Cub and an <laughs> Expo. But it's weird the guys that find that line, I do think of them as both. But that's the line for me. It's like 86, 87. Whatever team they were on then is it tends to be the team I associate them most with. But let's talk about 1981 and Split Season, your great book. Let's start with why this was the strike that saved baseball. What was the strike primarily about and what did, uh, what was accomplished from it in the end? So the players were granted free agency by an arbitrator's decision in December of 75. So guys who were in the last year of their contract in 76 and didn't sign became free agents in 77. Baylor was one of those guys. He signed with the angels. Um, What happened in the baseball world was, not only were players shocked at the money being thrown at them, but owners were shocked at how they couldn't control each other. So in the, in the subsequent few years after owners kept trying to figure out a way how to kill free agency, 
not amongst themselves, which they tried to do later with collusion, um, but trying to exact it uh, an end to it through the collective bargaining agreement. So what the owners wanted to do was basically turn free agency into a trade. It was called direct compensation. And basically it was, if you sign a free agent from my team, I get to pick a quality major leaguer from your team, which of course would crush free agency, crush the increase in salaries, and the players would have none of it. I look at that as like an incredibly principled stand. Marvin Miller, who was head of the players union, felt the same way. The players were smart. Baylor actually um, was part of the executive committee, was at a lot of the negotiations. Uh, Interestingly, wouldn't talk to me when I requested an interview because he was working for management at that time. Um, But uh, the players stood their ground in a way the owners didn't expect and preserved free agency. And, you know, there's a funny thing in baseball where fans tend to think like, you know, if players only made a hundred grand now, tickets would be a nickel. (laughs) You know, the owners would still charge you top dollar for food, concessions, tickets, and then they just wouldn't pay the players. So this idea that player salaries led to increased prices is kind of silly. Um, So the players stuck their ground, held their ground, they saved free agency and really set on, set baseball on course to have more teams make the playoffs and world series over the next 10 plus years than in any time previous. You know, I always talk about how, particularly if you grew up on the East coast, you know, this purported golden era of baseball in the forties, fifties and sixties, which was nonsense. You know, if you were a Dodger fan or a Yankee fan, sure. It was a golden era. They made the world series every year. If you were a Red Sox fan in the fifties, it was a pretty lousy era. So free agency saved baseball because it kept movement of players to teams and terrible teams could become good teams pretty much overnight. So I credit the players for that. And this season, because of the strike, the strike happened in the middle of the year. The season was split into two halves, hence the title of your book, Split Season. And it's an interesting format uh, where you had the division winners of the first half play the division winner of the second half. Do you think a format like that could actually work in today's baseball? You know, the the failing of the format in 81 was it only gave credit for the half seasons and gave no credit for the full season performance. So the Reds had the best record in all of Major League Baseball, but they didn't win either half, uh, so they didn't make the playoffs. And the Cardinals had the best record in the NL East, when there were only two divisions, uh, and they didn't make the playoffs because they didn't win either half. So I think if there was ever a movement to discuss that, that's the key thing that needs to be figured out. How do you reward the half season title winners while also rewarding someone who may over the stretch of the season have a better record. Uh, It's an interesting idea because it kind of tackles some of that length of the season issues. Um, It certainly would, you know, maybe lead to more teams in the playoffs than there are now, but with the wild card and now the extra wild card and the one game play in uh, it seems like a lot of teams make the playoffs. So, I'm not sure it's as meaningful now as it was 36 years ago. 
the Yankees in 1981 were one of those weird teams. They won the division in the first half, then they were terrible in the second half, but they still made the playoffs because they won the division in the first half. They actually fired their manager during the second half of the season. What else was going on with the Yankees in 1981? So 81, you know, it's it's funny to me when I was researching the book, and I, I was living in New York in the 80s, and I don't know if it's because of Seinfeld or because, the Yankees started winning when Steinbrenner was an old man. But by the time Steinbrenner died, people kind of had this softer image of him. But in 81, 81 is a classic Steinbrenner, crazy, sadistic year. So he signs Dave Winfield, who was the preeminent free agent. He draws Reggie Jackson into his confidence. Uh, Reggie, of course, who is also motivated by his own self-interest, sees in the signing of Winfield leverage for his next contract Steinbrenner kind of leads him on and once the Yankees sign Winfield Steinbrenner just crushes Reggie he's like we're not signing you to long term you're too old he, and and he proceeded the whole season to just berate Reggie in the press and Reggie you know is a fascinating dude and you know his psyche is pretty fragile so this kind of non-stop psychological tormenting of his superstar is a is a running theme as you say uh they fired uh, Steinbrenner fired Gene Michael with about a month to go in the season even though they had already locked in a playoff spot um Steinbrenner was really you know this idea that like he just wanted to win you know the Dodgers were winning as many pennants in that period as as Steinbrenner was and they didn't treat people terribly so the Yankees were truly um, in 81 part of that Bronx Zoo era. And it's really both fascinating to read and also a little horrifying at the same time. Yeah, on the other side of the country, I think when the most common association outside of the strike of 1981 is Fernando Venezuela and Fernando Mania. Tell me a little bit just about living through that and what really, how he captured the baseball universe. This guy that no one really knew about going into the season became the biggest draw in baseball by the end of it. Yeah, you know, it was really a different time in terms of how a, probably a celebrity in general, but also a sports celebrity would, would occur. You know, now a guy like Fernando who pitched a shot at it opening day at Dodger stadium. Uh, had he done that, he'd be talked about on MLB now on ESPN on every blog site tweeted about constant clips. It would be blown up immediately. But in New York where I was, you know, you started hearing about him. He pitched one shutout, another shutout. He was this quirky kind of pudgy young guy who looked old folk hero who kind of exploded in California and then slowly the Fernando train kind of moved east. So by the time he came to New York in June, I think it was, um, that was the first time people had been able to see him live uh, at Chase Stadium and it was a big crowd. Um, that slow build of celebrity only adds to celebrity, right? It's like he did this and then he did this and then he did this. <laughs> you know, you don't get it all at one time. And Fernando really was the story of that year. It's fitting that the Dodgers end up winning the World Series because it seems like that had to be destiny from the moment Fernando took the world by storm. I'm curious what your 
favorite memory is from 1981 when you were living it, but then when you started doing research for your book, what were some of your favorite things that you unearthed? Some of the things that you discovered that may not have been fresh in your memory or that you didn't know at all? So my favorite memory from 1981 is actually, it's a baseball story that becomes like a personal moment. So in the 81 World Series, where the Yankees jump out to a 2-0 lead and then proceed to lose four in a row, um, after they lose, I think, the second or third in L.A., George Steinbrenner purportedly got into a fight in an elevator with two Dodger fans. And Steinbrenner had his arm in a sling. It, It clearly never happened. I mean, we're 36 years into it. No one has ever stepped up and said, I was the guy with my buddy who fought George Steinbrenner in the elevator. Probably Steinbrenner punched a wall. Who knows? Um, But it was a big story that like unhinged George gets into a brawl defending the Yankees honor when he's destroying the Yankees honor every day with his behavior. That Halloween, which was right after the World Series, I went to a costume party in the typical George blue blazer and khaki pants and my arm in a sling and a shiner and a Yankees cap. So that to me was like the most memorable part of 81. Um, But the thing I reclaimed in the research, you know, I'm in Cooperstown. Pete Rose is always circling around the Cooperstown discussion, the hall of fame discussion. He's here annually. What was interesting to kind of revisit was Pete Rose as king of the world. In 81, he broke Stan Musial's all-time NL hit work record. You know, we talk now about the face of baseball. Pete Rose was the face of baseball without any negative connotation. And to revisit it, to read about him, to watch clips, to watch him talking to Ronald Reagan on the phone after Rose set the hit record, um, the NL hit record, it really was it was kind of lovely to for a brief moment, remember Pete Rose for being a great ball player and not the problematic figure he is today. Do you think Rose belongs in the hall of fame as a player? You know, who gets in and who doesn't, doesn't really occupy a lot of space in my mind. I love the arguments and I get into them a lot. Rose gambling on baseball is a cardinal sin in a way that PEDs is not. Uh, in my mind. Uh, But if Pete Rose, if rules were changed to get Pete Rose a plaque in the Hall of Fame, I wouldn't think twice about it. It would be be fine with me. But it's not, the Rose story doesn't keep me up at night. Yeah, I think he belongs, but I have a much harder time with him than I do with Bonds and Clemens. To me, Bonds and Clemens are easy choices. Pete Rose, on the other hand, what he did is far worse, in my mind, at least, and it does give me pause, but ultimately I think that the Hall of Fame should put these guys in and acknowledge what they did, rather than just pretending like everything is okay and all the, everybody inducted are, are saints. Right. I mean, you know, the thing that makes the Baseball Hall of Fame so vital is that people like you and I have these discussions every day of the year. No one, no one has these discussions about the Basketball Hall of Fame. I agree with you on the Rose storyline. There aren't people who gambled on baseball and it was known and they got in. So there's a story about Cobb and uh, Blasier betting on stuff at the end of the year, Cobb and Speaker, I think. So there are little things like that. But the PED thing, 
leads to such inconsistencies and such hypocrisy that that ultimately drives me crazy. No doubt there are guys in the Hall of Fame who are on steroids. I think in 2013, when Bonds and Clemens were on the ballot and didn't get in, I think it was Fergie Jenkins was interviewed on MLB Network, and he said, look, we, we know there are guys in who are on steroids. I'm like, okay, <laughs> then then what's the, what's the point? <laughs> you know, if we know that, no one, no one who's in is going to say, I need to come clean now because it's not in their interest to. But, um, you know, we've seen in the last few years people who have been kind of whispered about, and whether it's true or not is not important to me, but if it is true, then where, then where is that line? <laughs> you know, I mean, Bagwell had to wait three years, and if everything people whisper about him is true, how do you keep Barry Bonds out, who's one of the two greatest ball players of all time? So um, I think the back and forthness of the PED argument is its weakness because there's no clear cut line like there is with gambling. I want to go back to the 81 season for a little bit. There was another great rookie in the National League as well. That was Tim Raines' first full season, or as full as it could be given the strike. And he stole 71 bases in 88 games. He was incredible. And he led the Expos into a playoff run as well, which also led to Blue Monday, the infamous game between the Dodgers and the Expos. What do you remember from that game? Well, what I remember is, um, I do remember they were kind of snowed out the day before. Um, and I don't even know if, if I had access to being able to watch Blue Monday. Maybe. I, I don't really have – I mean, I have strong memories of it happening. But, you know, the way the world was, it was, you know, it was on possibly – you know, it was on during the day. I was in school. I probably had class. Maybe I caught the end of it. Um, it it's a funny landscape when you're <laughs> – when you're – when you grew up pre-cable and pre-internet where – you didn't really see everything in the way you see everything now. But, um, but I certainly remember the game and I certainly remember range, you know, the 81 season is such a uh, microcosm of Reigns's career. Right. So in any other year, he's one of the greatest rookies of all time, but in that year he's played second fiddle to Fernando throughout the eighties. If it was only Tim Reigns, Tim Raines would have gotten in the Hall of Fame 10 years ago, but there was Ricky. So, you know, from the beginning of his career, he always had someone overshadowing his amazing accomplishments. Uh, but that year was great. And what's interesting about the Expos is if it wasn't for the split season, they wouldn't have made the playoffs at all because the Cardinals had the best record in the division. So that Expos team that lost in the last weeks of 79 and 80, and only made the playoffs in 81, only made the playoffs because of the split season format. Good stuff right there. It's a great book. I encourage everyone to go and give it a read. You can also find out more about two pitchers, both across 3,000 strikeouts and Tom Seaver and Steve Carlton. They did it in the same month, I believe, which is good stuff. You detail the whole season, the strike, everything else. It's a great book. I encourage people to give it a read. You've been listening to Jeff Katz. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Split Season 1981 pick up his excellent book split season as well jeff thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today it was a real pleasure ross thanks for having me on